humility of Christ, supreme humility, the exaltation of Christ that resulted from his humility. And so we have seen how that the Lord has, has provided through Paul's writing this example for us of what the mind of Christ actually is, how that looks, what it looks like within the life of the believer. And so then he is saying in verses 12 and 13, of course, explaining to us that there is truly an expectation to this salvation. Now, the expectation, again, is not something God is saying, well, I saved you, now you do the rest. Of course not. But there is an expectation to this new birth and new life that we have been given. He says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Within this verse, Paul addressed these believers as my beloved. Now again, we read statements like this in Scripture, and if we are not careful, we pass over them without really understanding or giving the significance to the thought that is being, being uh, communicated. And that is that he says, my beloved. We must remember this. Continued obedience in the gospel will bind the hearts of God's people together in a godly love. We are beloved not because we like someone else. We are beloved because we've been loved of God. And now that I've been loved of God and you have been loved of God, as we are, are in obedience to the gospel and, with the, and in the Lord, that produce and cultivate a godly love and a belovedness that exists only among believers in Jesus Christ. And so when he says, my beloved, this has significance to, to what he, as he's introducing this thought. And if the people of God are not faithful, faithfully walking in the truth of God, it will inevitably result in a superficial fellowship. You don't have fellowship because you go out and participate in the life of, with someone in their life. You have fellowship because of the common bond of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God who dwells within us. This is our fellowship. Again, I remind you, even along these same lines, in Ephesians 4.3, when Paul got to the practical portion of the letter and is addressing this, the, the believers concerning their position in chapters 1-3, through 3, the position that he's given them in Jesus Christ and now living out that truth, he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And then he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, he did not say manufacture unity. He did not say even... He didn't even say cultivate the unity. He said maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's not unity. It's not your unity and my unity and us coming together in unity. It is the Spirit providing that unity because we are one body in Christ. And so this is important to, again, acknowledge and understand as we are walking with the Lord. So it's not that we grow in fellowship because we have things in common. That is not our fellowship. And if you think that's what fellowship is, you see fellowship from a very superficial perspective. Fellowship extends far beyond having things in common. Except, unless you're looking at it from this perspective, we have the identity of Christ, that's in common. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, that's in common. We will suffer trial and tribulation for Christ's sake, that's in common. We have all been redeemed and none of us are worthy, that's in common. Are you following? Yeah, we're caught, we have these things in common, but it's not earthly things that we have in common. It's all that which is spiritually and eternally rooted and grounded. And so we have a fellowship that extends beyond me liking you and you liking me. And our love extends beyond liking someone else. It genuinely does as believers. I, I have to tell you, it's, you may find this to be comical or maybe you won't, but I am thankful the scripture does not command me to like everyone. Because I don't like everyone and people don't like me either. Some people, I'm sure, somewhere. 
But we can love in Christ even when we don't like. Because the Spirit of God living within us, there is a love that supersedes and is greater than our preferences, our things that we enjoy. And it's that bond that we have in Jesus Christ. So he says, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So when the people of God walk together in this truth, the love of God, the love of God and the love for the truth of God will bind the hearts of the people of God together with an eternal bond, a spiritual bond beyond our our ability to produce or cultivate. And it's for this reason that Paul said, my beloved. He was rejoicing in the fact that these believers were faithfully continuing to live in submission and obedience to God and His truth. So Paul doesn't just say, oh, my beloved, as they were living their lives in sin and rebellion against God. No, he's saying, my beloved, and this love has been produced and is present and is real and is acknowledged and realized because you are continuing in the faith. You are continuing in the truth of God. You are living lives in submission to the Lord. And Paul loved them for this very reason. And it wasn't the performance, that's not the point. It was the genuineness of their conversion. The genuineness of their walk with the Lord, which brought him great joy. In verse 2 of this chapter, Paul had stated, Philippians 2, 2, Fulfill ye my joy. And he talks about being like-minded. Following in the truth of the Lord, having the mind of Christ, humbling ourselves, viewing others preferred before ourselves. Then we also see the Apostle John, as we've studied recently uh, on Wednesday evenings, that he expressed the same abundance of joy regarding those who lived in the truth of Christ when he instructed them. In 2 John verse 4, he said, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Then in 3 John verse 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So what is he saying? He says, the joy that is present in me is your continued obedience, submission to the Lord that fulfills joy within me because I see the working of God in you. He says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. We need to remember something. Biblical salvation is not a one-time experience, but rather it is the beginning of a new life that not only provides eternal confidence and purpose, but also equally provides a continued sanctification of the present life which we live. Such obedience and sanctification should not be viewed as an exception. Isn't it odd? Think about this for a moment. As an example, when someone who has been faithful to the Lord throughout the years of their life as a follower of Christ, and God has been glorified and honored through their life, and let's say they pass into eternity... It's almost as though the people who gather, even believers, and talk about that, talk about this being some great exception to what is normal. And what No, this should be what is normal. Submitting to the Lord and following after Him. This is the expectation of this salvation that God has provided. As we've been studying Jude's epistle on Wednesday evenings, this is the common salvation to which Jude referred to in verse 3 of his epistle. This is the shared salvation which bears a shared result in producing shared fruit of the Spirit as we are continually being sanctified by God. Paul's statement that these believers had always obeyed is not a statement of perfection, but a statement explaining that there was a pattern of obedience within the life of the Philippian believers. These Philippian believers were known for their faithful obedience and submission to God's Word. Now, Paul had addressed his thankfulness 
for the faithfulness of these believers in his opening remarks within this epistle. Go back to chapter 1. Let's look at verses 3 through 7. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Do you understand why he says that? Now, he doesn't exactly say the same thing to the Corinthian church. Though he recognized them to be saints, the church of, of the Lord Jesus, and, and he spoke how that God had gifted them with everything necessary for them to flourish in spiritual truth and fruitfulness. He mentions all those things, but he did not say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. The Philippian church, this is peculiar to them. And Paul is saying, your obedience to the faith, your submission to Christ, it has brought me such joy that even when I am in prison, which he's in prison when he wrote this epistle, he says, oh, I rejoice in the thought of you. And now, you know, we know from Scripture that the Philippian church ministered to Paul. They ministered to the church at Jerusalem. We understand that they were, they were ministering to others. But Paul isn't saying that alone, though that's part of it, no doubt. He's saying, I am thankful. And look at why he says he's thankful. I thank my God upon every member of you, verse 4 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel. From the first day until now. Do you see what Paul just said? From the moment you came to faith, there has been a consistency of your fellowship in the gospel. And he says, this is why I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Because there is a faithfulness that is present, the evidence of God working in you. And then in verse 6, he clarifies that a little more, does he not? Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he says, look, I am thankful to see the faithfulness in your life, but Paul's saying, my confidence is not in you being faithful historically, or in your continued faithful, faithfulness presently, or in your expected faithfulness in the future. He says, I rejoice in your, thankful, in your faithfulness, but what I understand is that the, Paul's saying, my confidence, being confident of this very thing, that it's not about you and your performance of faithfulness. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father who is faithful to perform and complete that which He has begun. So if this is true, which it is, why should this be the exception? Should not this be the expected result of salvation? That there is a continued walking with the Lord, a continued faithfulness? Not perfection. This, but listen, the Philippian church was not perfect. We are not perfect, but that does not mean that our lives cannot manifest a pattern of dependency and resting and trusting in the sufficiency of the one who's begun this work in us to complete this work. We are responsible to sanctify ourselves, Paul told the Corinthian church, in that we are to flee fornication. We are not to give ourselves over. We are to, we are to maintain these vessels unto honor, as Paul wrote. But even in that, Paul is not saying the results of your sanctification is all up to you. I hope you do well with it. Listen, we would continue to fail in sanctification if God were not faithful to sanctify us. He is the one who is performing this work, and we can believe that it's going to be accomplished. He goes on to say, verse 7, even as it, chapter 1, verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, it's meet for me... I, I should be thinking this of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. 
Paul's statement concerning their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now is a testimony to the faithfulness of these believers as they followed Jesus as indicated by Paul's next statement of his confidence that the Lord who had begun this work in them would faithfully complete this work which he goes on to say, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. The statement is a testimony to the legitimacy of the faithful obedience of the Philippian believers. The submission of these believers was not based on outward appearances, on their attempts to make an impression upon the Apostle Paul. Their obedience was not hinged on others watching them or what others thought of them. But their faithfulness was to the Lord and His truth. If we are to be honest, while our testimony of faith is before men, it is not unto men. But the testimony of our faith is unto God. And it's for this reason the Scriptures instruct us to do all things as to the Lord and not unto men. Ephesians 6, 7, Colossians 3, 23, Paul mentions it. Second, let's look not only at the expectation of this salvation, but look at the responsibility of this salvation. Verse 12 goes on to say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, faithfulness to God is not simply professing a belief, but it is continue to walk humbly with the Lord. The prophet Micah explained what the Lord refers to as that which is good and that which is required by him. In Micah 6, 8, He has showed the old man what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Paul said, work out your own salvation. This command to work out is a personal exhortation. As we have discovered in our study of Jude, the faith is objective, and it's been handed down to all believers. However, as Jude expressed, the faith becomes personal to all those who are of the faith. In Jude verses 20 and 21, now, he's already said in verse 3 of Jude, earnestly contend for the faith. Again, a definite article is used, the definite article is used there, meaning it is a specific faith. It's not a faith, one of many faiths. It's the faith. But then look at what he says in verses 20 and 21 as he is wrapping up the epistle. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. But you know what Jude says just verses later in the final two verses of the epistle? He says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. To present you faultless before him in the presence of him and the Father. Do you see what Jude is saying? Jude is saying, wait, you have a responsibility here. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to continue to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. But... Even that is not dependent upon you because it is He who is able to keep you from falling, who will present you faultless. Again, let me remind you of this truth. And I don't know why people are so, well, I do know why people are so offended at this because it removes them out of the picture of all of this and therefore they really don't have a part. They are more so a recipient and therefore a participant in that respect. But they are a recipient of this working of God. And notice what Jude says. Building yourselves up, keeping yourselves in the love of God. But then he concludes by saying, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, present you faultless and blameless before him. So, what is Jude saying? He's saying, Well, the reality is, as Paul is saying as well, we have this responsibility as followers of Christ to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself, this mind of Christ, this submission to the purpose and will of the Father. We are to 
humble ourselves, preferring others before ourselves, but yet doing all of this unto the glory of God, because the same Spirit which demonstrated this in the person of Christ, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same Spirit that dwells in us. But notice, there's not one of us who could ever sanctify ourselves enough, clean ourselves enough, consecrate ourselves enough, separate ourselves enough. There's none of us who could do this of ourselves. At what point could we ever stand before God and say, okay, Lord, I think it's time for you to take me home now because I'm done. I've, I've done this work. I've completed this work. I am sanctified in... Practically speaking, I am holy. Practically speaking, I have separated myself from sin. I am consecrated completely. No, none of us can say that, can we? But do you know what will happen? There will be a moment in which God will complete this work as it is being manifested in time. And the moment we are leaving this life into eternity, it is a perfectly completed work that God has done, not us. And we will stand sanctified and holy, presented blameless. And it won't be because, boy, we really were obedient to God and submissive, weren't we? Who's going to stand before God and make such a claim? I have one plea, and that plea is Christ. I can glory in but one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is it. He is all sufficient. I am not sufficient. And you are not sufficient, but He is all sufficient. So there is a command that is here to work out your own salvation. But it is a command based on the provision of God's completed work in Christ. Vince Jones commented, Christ's work of atonement is finished. But then he said, work from the cross. Carry out the great work of sanctification by the help of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, your own, it is each, when he says work out your own salvation, your own, he says, is each man's own work no human friend, no pastor, not even an apostle can work it for him. Here's what he's saying. You have been personally redeemed by God the Father. You are personally sanctified in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. He says, and you are personally responsible unto the Lord to submit unto him. Revelation 3.20, you know the verse that's taken so much out of context so many times, and people refer to it as though it's talking about salvation and Jesus' is outside man's heart knocking on this door. No, it's the church of Laodicea. He's outside the door knocking on the door of the church. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is a wonderful truth. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him and he with me. In that statement, this is talking about the fellowship of Christ with his body. And he is saying, even if the church is cold and indifferent toward me, one man, who, because this is personal, the relationship is personal. The fellowship is personal. And he's saying, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him and he with me. Again, listen, this is a beautiful truth. You will be, and it's also, it's, it's also a convicting truth, while it is a beautiful truth. You will be following as close to Jesus as you desire to. Because you cannot blame anyone or anything else. Or lagging behind. The way has been made. It is provided. Thank God for the church where we can gather and we can edify and we can submit together corporately lifting praise and honor and glory unto God. But hear me, if no one else came here this morning and you showed up by yourself, that does not hinder in any way you praising the Lord and lifting glory and honor to His name and rejoicing in His goodness. 
So though we can corporately come together and we rejoice in that, my fellowship with the Lord is not dependent upon you. My sanctification is not dependent upon you. The joy of the Lord in my life is not dependent upon you. Now Paul says, fulfill my joy. He's saying, oh, my joy will abound and exceed as I see you walking in truth. Understand, joy was in the heart of Paul while in prison because Christ dwelt within Paul while in prison. So this call to embrace the continued work of God's Spirit as He is perfecting this work of salvation within our lives is what Paul is explaining here in this text. Hebrews provides this exhortation in chapter 6, verses 1-3. through three. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of the eternal judgment, and this will we do if God permits. The writer of Hebrews is saying that we are, he, he, he's not saying we get over the cross but he is saying we move beyond the cross. He is saying we never get over the work of redemption, but we mature in this salvific work of God, in sanctification, leaving, therefore, the principles of the doctrine of Christ, the primary principles of what it is to be born again. Once we've been born again, we are to mature in the faith. We are to mature in fellowship with the Lord. We are to mature in our knowledge and understanding of this salvation, this redemption, this provision of God in Jesus Christ. Again, that's why Paul said, all things that were once gained to me, those I now count but lost for the excellency, for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. Saying to know Christ is superior to everything else. All other. Simon Peter said it like this in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 8. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Oh, did you hear that? We've obtained this like precious faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior Christ, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him, that hath called us to glory and virtue. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. This is about what Christ has done, God the Father has done through Jesus, and the knowledge of not only what he has done, but the knowledge of he who has done this. And he goes on to say, Whereby are given unto us great, are exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now listen, the foundation is that we have obtained like precious faith. Because of this, now add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, the patience of godliness, the godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we add these things? We're not sitting here with a list saying, well, I need to be more virtuous. No, it's through knowing Jesus that these fruit become evident in our lives as we continue to know Him. Peter exhorts believers to add to their faith, but faith is the very foundation we have obtained, and we live out this faith. These other attributes of such faith will be added to our lives and evident or manifested through our lives as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. For it is through this faith that one bears the fruit in the knowledge. So as we continue the faith, which is our foundation of which Christ is the author and perfecter, 
We then continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which results in a life continually being sanctified by the working of God's Spirit within us. So we are to work out, we are to live out, we are to flesh out this inward work which is being perfected by God's Spirit within us. God is faithful. It is He who is predestined, He is predetermined to conform us to the image of His Son. We, therefore, are to humbly submit ourselves to this work of God as the clay that is formed according to the design of the potter as the potter is working the clay in his hands. So we are to be submissive to the Father. Notice Romans 8, 28 and 29. You know these verses. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you hear what he just said? Whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate. God predetermined to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. How much of of that do you really think hinges on you? Are you going to complete that work? Absolutely not. You didn't begin the work. You don't complete the work. And again, I referenced this a moment ago, but Hebrews teaches this plainly, chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author. He's the progenerator of faith but he's also the perfecter of faith to which we've been called. Then he goes on to say, with fear and trembling. The Apostle John declared this in 1 John 4, 16 through 18. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. I have to deal with this in verse 17 before we actually move forward in in connecting this statement to what is being said here in Philippians. Let let me say that that John states, he says, perfect love casteth out fear. There's no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. But then he makes a statement, he that is perfect, I'm sorry, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. But notice what upon what all of this is hinged. He says in verse 17, prior to that statement, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Not as he was, as he is. As Christ is, so are we. Do you understand what John is saying here? We have boldness not because we are doing a good job. We have boldness because we are accepted as Christ is accepted by the Father, because we've been made accepted in the beloved. We are holy in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. This is our confidence. I have absolute confidence that I can stand before God, not holding my head high because I am faithful or have done well, but I can stand confidently, not arrogantly, boldly and confidently before God because I know the Father is pleased in His Son in whom He has accepted redemptive work. This is my confidence. That's what John's saying here. As he is, as Christ is, before the Father, with the Father, unto the Father, so are we in this world right now. I'm going to tell you something. My life, practically speaking, and your life, practically speaking, does not look exactly like the life of Jesus, practically speaking. But positionally, I am holy before the Father. Positionally, I am righteous before the Father. Not because of me, because of Jesus. And therefore, we have boldness. We do not have fear. So connecting this back to Philippians, Paul states in Philippians, we are to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. 
John's statements, perfect love casteth out fear, and he that feareth is not made perfect in love, are clear statements concerning the power of salvation to deliver us from fear and terror, from torment, from judgment. Yet Paul says, work out the salvation with fear and trembling. This statement by Paul is one in which Paul emphasizes the importance in recognizing the gravity of submitting to God's work of sanctification within our lives. In other words, let me say it to you like this. There is not one genuine believer in Jesus Christ who knows anything of Scripture and has walked with the Lord any amount of time who views this salvation from this perspective. Oh, I'm going to heaven, so what else matters? No. That is not the work of sanctification at all. Neither is that the work of salvation. So Paul states in Philippians, we are to work the salvation out with fear and trembling. And this work of salvation is of the greatest seriousness and importance. This salvation is the eternal purpose of God. It required the sacrifice, the death of his son, through the supreme humility of Jesus, as emphasized in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. Robertson quoted Vincent and Lightfoot referring to this matter of fear and trembling by stating, Vincent said, it's not slavish terror, but wholesome serious caution. Lightfoot says, a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right, meaning there is a desire to follow after the Lord, and we look seriously upon this salvation and the sanctification which is being accomplished. So to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul stated here in this verse, is to acknowledge the seriousness of this salvific work which God has performed in us, and the importance of this sanctification which God continues to manifest in the lives of those whom he has redeemed. We are to take seriously our responsibility to submit to the Lord's working in our lives. We must not quench and we must not grieve the working of God's Spirit. Here's the reality of it. You quench the Spirit of God, He's still going to do the work. You grieve the Spirit of God, He's still going to do the work. But the process is going to be much more painful (laughs) along the way. We can either be conformed, rejoicing and understanding that these, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. As we look to things, as we look not on things which are seen, but to that which is not seen, Paul says in Corinthians. Or, God will continue to conform us as we suffer through the process tremendously, rather than acknowledging the joy of the finished product that is being accomplished. But hear me, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Christ, even if it's through death. And ultimately, it is through death that that is accomplished in all of us, really. But even if it's through the the manner of death that that must be that this is accomplished, God's going to do the work. So I would rather submit to the Lord doing the work and rejoice in His hand working. I've said to you this so many times, as God is conforming me to the image of Christ, It's not always a pleasant process, but I have joy nonetheless, just thankful that he has included me in his eternal redemptive purpose and that his love for me is too great as his child to let me continue as I am, but he will conform me. That is joyful, regardless of the pain and suffering along the way as it's being worked out. The Heavenly Father sacrificed his son Our Lord Jesus submitted himself to this purpose of the Father. And if our Lord Jesus sacrificed his life to this salvation, we as well are to commit our lives to the sanctifying work of God, which is the result of this salvation. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear. 
Lord willing, next week we'll continue our examination of verse 13 by considering the confidence of this salvation and the purpose. May God be glorified in us as we cautiously, sincerely work out that which God has worked in. As we are exhorted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 1 through 3, and I'm finished. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint. Let this mind be in you. Work out. Don't work on salvation. Don't work for salvation. Don't work toward salvation. Don't work at salvation. Work out what God has already worked in. Let this mind be in you. Let this sanctification be perfected in you. Uh, Acknowledge God's purpose and submit to He, the great potter, as He is molding the clay to that which is pleasing unto Him. Stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these marvelous truths and the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ as we continue to see the revelation of Jesus in the Word of God, that we know we can rest totally in He who has been accepted by the Father. He who you have accepted and are pleased with his redemption, the redemptive work he's accomplished as he proclaimed, it is finished. As he rose for our justification, as he now ever lives as the intercessor, his work is complete, it's been accepted, it is approved, it is complete. You are pleased. And because of this, we are now accepted in his presence. have a place. Thank you for May we not take it lightly in the responsibility you've given us to to submit to the working of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. May we see the seriousness of this calling to walk worthy of the vocation, walk worthy of this salvation. Not that we could ever measure up to the righteousness of Jesus, but that we might live according to the grace that we have received. For glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Seated, we're going to observe the Lord.